done the first few verses and then moved over to verse uh, 12 and skipped verses 5 through uh, 11 in order to stay consistent with the idea of trials and tribulations. And so today we're going to pick up that center section, verses 5 through 8 this morning, and focus on that. But I'd like to read verses 1 through 8 together as a, as a whole. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersions, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, in a way of introduction where we were a couple of weeks ago looking at these verses in reference to trials and, and various kinds and, and uh, the reality of what they produce is that they produce steadfastness. Uh, we're to count, you know, we're told in, uh, here to count them all joy. We're told in Romans uh, 5, a very similar thing in reference to trials, that we're to look at them in, as, as a sense of joy. And, you know, we've been told to pray and, and to worship without a, a sense of ceasing. And, and people say, well, how do I do that? I can't run around just constantly, okay, Lord, you know, praying. But it's an attitude that we're talking about. And here is an attitude of worship in the midst of trials and tribulations. Can we recognize in the midst of a fallen world as the, the fallen world that impacts our lives? And, and even though we are believers, it doesn't matter how far we get and how close we get in the sense of our relationship with Christ, we are still trapped. And I'm careful how I say this because it can be misinterpreted. I hope it never happens on the tape. In our Adamic (laughs) bodies, meaning bodies that we've inherited from Adam. And as a result, because we're in the flesh, we have a battle going on. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter chapter 7. And so uh, when we look at trials and and various of various kinds, some of those trials might be things that are our health. It might be physical, it might be emotional, it could be mental. Uh, it can be with other people, a relationship, it can be with family, it can be with all sorts of issues. And in the midst of those trials, Paul tells us, Jesus has told us, James here is telling us to count it all joy. Now, I know that you have to be at least somewhat like me. And when I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning and my body is saying, you know, no, in the sense of my leg doesn't want to work or, or whatever, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not at instantly saying, thank you, Lord. However, because of one friend, uh, guy that I, a friend that I, I roomed with in multiple trips to Mexico, 
his first words as he woke up in the morning, and he slept on his back with his arms across his chest. It was amazing. And he never, I don't know if he ever moved. His blankets were so unmoved in the morning. Uh, And they put us in the same room because we both use a CPAP. And anybody that knows that is it's something that can be very irritating to a non-user trying to get to sleep. And so uh, uh, he would wake up in the morning and and the first thing that would come out of his mouth as he took his CPAP off and and, and, uh, was, good morning, Lord. Thank you. And what he was simply doing was saying, thank you for another day. And he had no idea what was coming of the day or whatever. He had serious health issues. He had heart problems. He had a, a, a multiplicity of issues. And yet here he was, because he had his bus driver's license, one of our bus drivers, carting kids all over Mexico uh, in, in, a, in, in a clinic, a health medical clinic and evangelism uh, trip. And God was using him. And it was so inspiring to watch this. And it definitely changes your attitude when you realize how blessed we are and how this attitude of gratitude needs to be there, even in the midst of trial. Not always easy. We're not always successful. But what we pray is that the Holy Spirit will convict us, bring us back, and He does. So, trials of various counts, types of kinds, producing this steadfastness. And if it has its full effect, when steadfastness has its full effect, when the trials of various kinds come against us and they work on us, Their full effect is that we will be complete, lacking nothing. What an outcome when you think about it. But the idea of to be complete and lacking nothing in itself can be a little bit confusing. Complete in what way? Meaning I'll have all the money I need? Have all the resources I need? Have a car that runs? Have a house whose roof doesn't leak? You know, what what is all I need? Because I happen to know a little bit by first hand, but, but by the, the testimony of so many different missionaries and people from other countries that have been ministered to by missionaries that we've sent out, that we've had the opportunity to have back here in the United States, where we find out that what they have is so much less. And yet they're going through trials and tribulations, many of, uh, of the like which are beyond our comprehension, I mean, we're not sitting there having to walk two miles for fresh water, uh, this type of thing. And and yet the steadfastness, it says, is making them complete. So it must not have anything to do with creature comforts. I want you to make sure you, you get that, because this lacking nothing has nothing to do with creature comforts. It has to do with our spiritual walk with the Lord. We will be lacking nothing in recognizing who God is, what He is doing, and what He has done for us, and the fact that even though we deserve, and the only thing we deserve is death for our sins, we have life in Christ. And 
we are in that context already there, lacking nothing for our salvation. There isn't a thing you can bring to church this morning that gets you more saved than you were yesterday. You're as saved as you're ever going to be. When Paul says work out your salvation, he's not talking about getting more saved. He's talking about walking in a manner that is approaching and understanding more and more of God and drawing closer to Him, a change in the way you appear and look at the world. And in fact, that's what we're talking about this morning, this idea of becoming complete in God, lacking nothing. In verse 5, it, it, it throws a picture into this anyway. It, says, it ends, verse 4 ends, lacking nothing. And verse 5 starts, and if you lack. Now, James is writing to the same people. That, that nothing's changed between those two lines. Okay, which makes it automatic. It seems that while you may lack nothing in your walk with the Lord in the sense of salvation and all that, you may still lack things and have need. One of them we need to talk about this morning, and that's wisdom. If any one of you lacks wisdom, ask God. And what we're looking at here is according, I think uh, we'll have to take a jump ahead a little bit and and look to chapter 3, verse 13. where we look at the fact that that there's uh, two kinds of wisdom that James is looking at. James writes in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in his meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But it is earthly, unspiritual, harsh word coming here, demonic. What does demonic mean? Anybody want to offer an opportunity, a a shot at it? Of the devil is the simplest way to put it. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above... Is first pure and peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Two types of wisdom that we look at here. One is, is earthly. One is heavenly or of the God of, of God. The earthly wisdom is characterized uh, by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, causing disorder and every vile practice. And the word vile here, we could say basically everything that is ungodly. Go to Romans if you want in chapters 1 and 2 where it talks about the fallen man and, and all the things that man does and, and ultimately ends up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's what it's basically referring to. So if we want to just stop with earthly wisdom, there's where we are. But wisdom from above, notice the, the, the contrast that he puts here. 
pure. And I thought, pure, meaning what? Pure. Without any uh, contaminant. Okay? But I found out as I studied the word a little harder, it has an inclusion in the thought of it as unselfish. Pure love is unselfish. Who do we look to for pure love as an example? The Lord. What are we, tell, what are we told about it? He is unselfish with His love. He so loved us that He gave. He's, he's unselfish. That is pure. So this idea of pure, unselfish, uh, it, it puts God first, the other person second, and yourself third. It's peaceable. In other words, it's not looking for an argument. It's not having to be right all the time. The other kind, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, implies that it has to be my way or no way. And if you have something that I don't, then I'm going to be what? Jealous. And it even says bitter jealousy, which means the implication means is that to work hard for it, even to the point of taking yours if I could. Peaceable is, is wisdom from above. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. Sounds like I'm reading the fruit of the Spirit almost from Galatians chapter 5. And I thought about that because just before the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is the works of the flesh. And if you, if you have time, mark that down and go back and look at it because the works of the flesh are the things that are vile. The work of the Spirit are the things that are good. And so it coincides very well here. And so Paul and James are right together, I believe, in this, in this idea of looking at how this works. So if you lack wisdom, ask God. Now... As we approach this, we have to remember, and we did this going through the book of Proverbs, uh, the different uh, studies that we did in that uh, several weeks ago uh, over a period of a couple of months. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and, and chapter 9, verse 10 talk about the beginning of, of you know, uh, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Okay, it's the idea of having knowledge, which ultimately is followed by the idea of fear of the Lord. Having fear of the Lord, very specifically in chapter 9, verse 10. What does it mean to have a fear of God? And there's a lot of different things that you could put in here. Uh, what came up for me was something that I had written down but hadn't used the last time I talked on this. And that was... Uh, from Hebrews chapter 12, or, uh, the writer to Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That is to fear the Lord. To offer Him reverence and awe. To revere Him, to hold Him in awe. And only Him. We can, we can look at each other in, in a sense and, and, and there are times where we may be in awe about... I, I, I remember when I was about nine years old, 
This man, I, 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 how many, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the original Thunderbird. But it was a little sports car, basically. Okay? And it had a, uh, you could get one that had a removable uh, hardtop. And so, here's this hardtop. But it looked, it looked different, because I happen to know this, because my stepdad had one when he met my mom. And I was impressed, I have to tell you, with this car. And uh, I saw this, this Thunderbird, and it was the same color as my, as my dad's. And I looked at it first, and then I realized there's something different about the shape of this car. The, 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 the top, the, the hood, if you will, or the roof of it, was, seemed like more of a bubble than the other one. It wasn't as sleek. I thought, I wonder, oh, if that's what, is that the new one? <laughs> you know? and, and, of course, I'm young enough that I don't know when models are supposed to come out and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, this, this person gets out of it, and it takes a long time. This guy that got out of it, and this is no joke, was just under nine feet tall. He's one of the tallest men in the Guinness Book of Records back then. We had just had this big thing in, in, in there, and, and he was stopped to get out of there to go into the drugstore. You know, I, you know and, and when you looked inside the car, the seat was all the way back to where the jump seat was in, in, in the, the car. There was no little ridge back seat or little jump seat that the, the original uh, T-Bird had. And, and he got, I have to confess, there was a point where I was in awe. Because as short as I am today, you've got to remember, I'm, I'm considerably shorter then. And all I could do was watch this like this. And he looks down and, he's, and, he, and he takes out, of, out and puts on a big cowboy hat. And he walks and he has to go like this to go through the door. And I'm amazed. So we can be in awe of certain things. But, I, you know, but it's, not, it's not the same. When we talk about being in awe of God, it's because of who he is. He's the creator of the universe. And it was by His Word that it was put together. He is the beginning. He is, you know, if, if, if you, when I was in high school, I didn't understand Christianity, but I had a teacher who went as far as he could in his science class. He was a Christian. I knew him later uh, as, a, as a Christian. We ended up having lots of neat talks. Uh, and his name was Dr. Blodgett. And he was a guy that should have been teaching in universities, but he loved teaching high school. And what he drilled into us was the reality that there must be an intelligent designer to put all of this stuff together for this to be not solid, but still here as what I look at as solid. I work with wood. Now, you know, teak is one kind of wood, and, it, and, 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 you know, and it, it's not the hardest wood. One of the hardest woods is ash. And when you saw it, it doesn't take long to wear out your blade. Smoke going all over the place as it's cutting through. And, and you're thinking there. And, of course, I'm in high school, and I'm, I'm apprenticing at the same time in the, in the shop that I was working in and, we, and cutting ash. And I'm not kidding you. I sit there and looked at that thinking, he's telling me that this isn't solid, that it's held together, and, it's, and that science 
cannot figure out what the glue is. They've come up with all sorts of ideas, but they still haven't got it down. According to the Scripture, it's the Word of God. I didn't understand that at all, but I'm just saying, being amazed and wonder and awe of the world, that's the worldly way. But when we're Christians, we know who it is. All the more the idea of reverence and awe and amazement of who He is. John chapter 1, we've gone through this before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Knowing who the Word is, and it talks about the light coming into the world, and then it goes to verse 14, and the Word came into the world and dwelt among us. He became flesh. So we know that it's speaking of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that, that He emptied Himself. That Christ emptied Himself. That's the Word becoming flesh into this world. And like I've shared with you a few weeks ago, literally into the womb of a teenage woman. To be born like any other child is born. He humbled Himself. I mean, that, that is awe-inspiring all by itself. The God of all creation. Because we're told in Colossians chapter 1, He is preeminent in all things. He is the Creator of all things. And we're told that He emptied Himself, became a man, even to the point of a man serving other men, even to the point of on the cross. His death on the cross. Reverence and awe. Hebrews 12 tells us to have a reverence and awe. It's part of our acceptable worship with reverence and awe as we recognize that He is given us and, and made us part of this kingdom that can't be shaken. And then the, the conclusion of that little passage says, for our God is a consuming fire. We're to be in reverent and awe of Him because He is a consuming fire. By the way, that phrase can't be trifled with. Consuming fire means He's the God of judgment. He is the God of wrath. So in the midst of all of this, we're looking at him, and it says, by the way, we're in awe of him because he is this. But yet he has made us a part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so all the more the awe. We, we should be under his wrath, but we're under his grace. I think it's, it's simple just to be in awe that we have this. It's an amazing thing to think about. Chapter 2 of Timothy, Paul writes to him and says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, or God breathed. That the man of God may be competent, uh, equipped for every good work. God breathed. Do you know how many times in the history of, of man there has been an attempt to stamp out the Bible? Even in countries today that, that look down you don't, you know, on, on Christians and Christian groups, uh, periodically they have cleansings and people that have managed to get up a little bit in the level of, of uh, as, as Christians in, in foreign countries, China, North Korea, other places... Uh, they they 
come and they, they make sure that nothing, they, they, they don't get any further, or they actually have to make and sign some statement that they can't sign and as a result lose the status that they have. And in North Korea, even up in a prison camp even. And so they try to stamp out the word. But you know what's interesting is that even in prison camps, literally all over the world that, that are political and, and religious in nature, they have pieces of Scripture. God provides it. We have the Word of God. God breathed. So this is the God we ask. <laughs> you know, in reference to wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask God. And it says that, that, that He is going to give it to us. And I looked at this and I thought, there's two aspects even to this. There's the studying of word, the Word of God and meditating on it and growing in wisdom. But God is also even able to give you wisdom even beyond your ability if the need is there. Jesus says that there will be a point in time that where uh, you'll, you know, the words will be given to you. The words of wisdom will be given to you. Kind of a reflection on end times and, and, and possibly also the persecution of the church in the first and second centuries, especially all through history. But I think Stephen's the perfect example. In Acts chapter 6, it says they were, they were confounded by him. They were frustrated with him. The leaders of the Hebrew people were upset with him because he had such wisdom as he spoke. That's a supernatural aspect of what God does with wisdom. He's the supplier of wisdom for the purposes of His kingdom. And so we ask. We ask Him for wisdom. And so I, I, I thought, okay, what is it I'm asking for specifically? I mean, more than just saying, okay, God, give me wisdom. How am I going to know I got it if I, if I, I don't have something? And we've, we've kind of talked around it. Webster Dictionary puts it very simple the ability to make right use of knowledge and quite candidly that's pretty close to what the bible dictionary says most of them they add a few other words like being prudent uh, considered and competent uh, uh, action to master the various problems of life and and they got real wordy with it and i went back to webster because it was just simple Kelly Randolph is a pastor in, in uh, I think it's in Arizona still, but he, he, he put it this way. Wisdom involves the practice and use of knowledge and skill which enables a person to make right choices that honor and glorify the Lord. Let me say it again. Wisdom involves the practice and use of knowledge and skill which enables a person to make right choices that honor and glorify the Lord. By the way, because he adds the word skill there, that means our talents. Every aspect of who we are, even in our job, we are to do it, how? Unto the Lord. 
using our gifts, our talents, our education, and whatever we have. What does wisdom do? And again, this the idea of, of truly, you know, true wisdom or godly wisdom. Uh, it, it causes us to to deal with everyday life with its trials and its various uh, various kinds with the sense of of, of of serving and keeping a reverence and awe of God, to stand fast in the Lord. And again, ask God. You don't if you feel that you need to. And by the way, I realized as I was going through this, this is one of those things, just like I need to ask God for every other daily thing that I need, I need to ask this. It's not a one-time event. God, give me wisdom. And can I abuse wisdom? Can I even abuse God-given wisdom? King Solomon, yeah, okay. We won't go any further. When we ask, James says he's going to give to us generously. I look at that word generously, so another word to go and look up. Yeah. Abundantly. More than sufficient. More than enough. Above and beyond. Uh, it's like you, 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 you have uh, uh, your, your, your kids come up and ask for for uh, money to go, you know, get lunch. And you give them a 20 and say, enjoy. And they know that you've given them above and beyond what they need for lunch. You know, it's, it's, it's that more than enough. Abundantly, more than sufficient. And he does this, I, I, I thought, what an interesting phrase, without reproach. I never really associate the word reproach with God. Because he's beyond reproach is one of the phrases that you learn. And so he gives without reproach, which I mean, again, would put him with the idea of beyond reproach. But in this context, it means without finding fault in our request or our need. In other words, he never tires of the fact that we realize that we've blown it and we need it again. He never gets tired of forgiving us. Now, that doesn't mean he, that he doesn't say like, with an intent of like a parent might say, come along, Bob, we've gone through this before. But that's not reproach. That's instruction. That's encouragement. That's getting on with it. But the idea is that he gives this without reproach, meaning he holds nothing against us. He doesn't pull the book of forgiveness off the shelf and throw it at us again and say, oh, here we are again. He just... Starts where we are and carries us along. Now, the next couple of verses are a little tougher for me. Let this person who's asking for wisdom ask in faith without doubting. Now, doubting is something that is caused by other sources for wisdom. And what's the other sources for wisdom? There's a source God, there's a source demonic we finally narrowed it down to. And I hate to be so cut and dry, but that's it. John uh, does this later in 1 John where he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist is with us and around us already. And, and what is not of God is of the spirit of the Antichrist. Just that simple. Cut and dry. 
But I was looking at this before I, I, I put it into that context. I said, what are the sources that we normally look at for the idea of, of, of gaining wisdom? Well, my high school diploma. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was thinking of, of, of the, the, the Yellow Brick Road, uh, Wizard of Oz. You know, he got his diploma. Now he's smart, you know. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, it's the idea of if we just got through high school. Now, high school is important. Don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying here in the context of, of what we need. High school is important in the reference to day-to-day life and getting through. And it's a tool that you can use even in the context of learning to glorify God. All the things that you learn in high school that uh, I come back to even Dr. Blodgett and what I learned from him. You know, uh, There's things you can learn in high school. Whether it's, uh, Are you ever amazed at mathematics? You should be. It's an amazing thing that you can scribble all of these different things all through a board and come out with equals this, and 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 and, and you're sitting there looking at it, and there's triangles and squiggles and all this kind of stuff, uh, and you can, it shows you how much about math I know. I'm, I'm pretty good at two plus two, four, um, but. But I, I look at this and I, and I say that, well, that, that's assuming we're working in a 10-digit a, a system. Um, but, you know, we, we look at these things and, and, you know, day-to-day stuff that we learn. But high school is a step towards wisdom. College, graduate, you know, the idea of becoming wise. Uh, the, you, you get through your sophomore year. What is a sophomore? A wise Moron? Yeah, okay. You know, so you finally become a senior. Um, you know, uh, if we could just get to the right seminar or read the right self-help book or watch the right self-help DVD, we would be able to cope with and do better and, and be wiser in life. I'm not going to say that none of those things can't impart some kind of Worldly wisdom that will help you in the day-to-day life at, your, at a job or something like that. Doing a job better. This type of thing. But the, we're not talking about that kind of wisdom. We're talking about spiritual wisdom. Heavenly wisdom. Godly wisdom. And so when we look at all of these things that we have in the world today that offer us education, knowledge, and and in a sense, what the world would say, a path road into some form of wisdom, we need to take these sources of knowledge and accumulation of knowledge and filter it through the Word of God. And what stands the test of the Word of God, we can, we can use. There are certain aspects of, of science that are, that are absolutes that the God, when you look at it, is amazing. Science and God are not enemies. God invented it. <laughs> Let us ask with faith without doubting. And doubting is caused, like I said, by, by the way the world looks at things. It, 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 it brings a, a system that if you, just don't, if you don't know enough, you're, you're not good enough. So, again, we find ourselves asking God for the wisdom to apply 
to our lives. But I want to take a brief look at this, the, this picture of a doubter. In verse 7 it says, it, you know, and, and I wrote down here on my notes, is it possible to have faith without battling some doubt? And I'm going to come back to the reality because I'm tied to the flesh. The answer is no. I'm going to, there's always going to be a wrestling match going on here. And I thought of Matthew chapter 9 where the, the, the father is, is wanting his son healed and he brings his son to Jesus and, and, and he says, by faith in this thing. And, he's, and he, he says, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Jesus did. And so I'm thinking, wait a minute. Here, here's a guy who's getting ministered to by God and, and he's announcing that he has some unbelief. So what, you know, uh, you know and, and, and I thought also mustard seed faith. How big is a mustard seed? That's the starting point. What does a mustard seed grow into? It grows into a, a fairly large plant uh, and, and even tree that, that would give shade even in a desert. I mean, so, so mustard seed is a starting point. So all of this has to do with something with a starting point if I'm looking at it on one side. And so the, the person that James is concerned about here in the sense of doubting is described as double-minded. You can't separate those two things. It's a doubting person that is doubting because he is double-minded. And what does it mean to be double-minded? It means to be divided in your loyalties. I've got one foot where? In the world and one foot in the kingdom. And I'm straddling the fence. Now, James is going to make a harsh assessment here. If you're sitting on the fence, James is going to say your faith is insufficient. I think we have become too tolerant of fence-sitting in our culture. I don't mean what you... I'm not talking about TV and a lot of other things that you can, you can draw into it wherever you want to with that. What I'm talking about is our theology. I'm okay, you're okay. To the point where how we deal with, uh, with abortion, how we deal with homosexuality and gender issues and stuff like this, even within the framework of the church being passive. And we have to go back to is this or is this not the Word of God? We just said it was God-breathed. If it is God-breathed, using if in a mathematical argument or logic, since it is God-breathed, then we need to use it as our tool of understanding God's Word, God's heart, God's mind, how He thinks about things as much as is possible for us. The wisdom of God says, very clearly that that life is important, even life in the womb. If John could leap in the womb at the presence of Jesus in the womb, there's something going on in the womb. Somebody says, well, do you really believe that's exactly what happened? Yeah, God breathed. How I feel about gender issues. How I relate to homosexuality. 
Do I hate homosexuals? No. Is homosexuality a, a sin against God? Absolutely. But then so are a lot of other things that I might do that I just simply don't put as harsh a, a, a judgment on. So what I'm saying here this morning is, is this idea is this of being double-minded, divided loyalties. Working both sides, so to speak. What it creates is an un, within the spiritual realm of things, it creates an unstable person. You never know which way he's going to go. And now it takes us to Ephesians 4. Every wind of doctrine comes along. Oh, I hadn't seen it that way. Oh, now I see it this way. And, and, and the idea is, is, is just like he's on a sea, shifting from point to point to point and never landing. Unstable. You don't really know where he stands. Candidly, neither does he. So, looking at this is, is just finishing up, at least for the morning, because we will be back to this next week as well. Back to the basic principles that, that James is looking at here. Wisdom is a generous gift from God. We are to ask God for it. To understand wisdom, we have to first have a, and I'm going to put it very clearly, healthy fear of God. The reason why I put healthy means a personal relationship fear of God. In other words, we have approached the reality that God has offered us the opportunity to be part of His kingdom and, and confess with our mouths, believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come to save us. And that that is part of God's plan and in God's wisdom. It's an interesting thing that we find in reference to, to that as we look at, at, at that as God's wisdom. The world just doesn't see it that way. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, worldly wisdom, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, within the framework of the world, I am going to raise up my wisdom over its, its, its uh, discernment and so-called wisdom. And I'm going to do it, how? Through the cross. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, the world sees the cross and the death of Christ as, as, as folly, as unwise, as untenable. Okay? But God says, this is, this is where I stand. My wisdom is going to rise above through this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks uh, seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God says, my wisdom is revealed, how? Through the cross. And so as we approach Him to have a healthy fear of God, is that we must approach Him, how? Through the cross of Christ. I don't see any other avenue. There is no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but that of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who emptied himself as a man, went to the cross and died there so that we could have eternal life. And so the wisdom of God really starts with embracing the cross. Every Sunday we come together and we embrace the cross through communion. We don't just embrace the death of Christ. We embrace the, 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 the life of Christ. The bread is, is His flesh. He came into this world as a person, as a man, in the flesh. And so when we share in the bread, we're sharing in all the emphasis that means in the reference to He emptied Himself and became a man. He tabernacled amongst us. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so the bread isn't just to look at Him on the cross, but the reality of the humility of God emptying Himself to serve and to live and to do all the things that He did as a man perfectly in order to get to the cross and become the perfect, without blemish, Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so we look at the bread and then we take the cup and He says, this is my, my, my blood that is poured out. The idea is, is poured out completely. My life is poured out. Life is in the blood. And it's poured out. He died on the cross. But then He shared with Him at that last point and said, but I will not do this again at this point, I'm sharing this with you now, and I will not do this again until we are together. And I'm, re- I'm sure that's the marriage feast as they celebrate the culmination of all that is talked about. And at that point, complete, lacking nothing, will be absolutely true. Ask that the uh, worship team come forward, the ushers come, pass out the communion, hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share it together.